up inquirers and welcome back to inquiries of our reality i'm your host shane as always and today's guest has an absolutely fascinating new theory that i didn't know a lot about before going into the episode but as we started rolling it had a lot of weird synchronicities and connections with a lot of stuff that i've been researching lately and with the episode before this one so i highly recommend going and listening to the last episode if you haven't listened to that one already to connect a lot of the dots on this episode but before we get into this absolutely fascinating episode of course got to do the front of house stuff so if you guys aren't already following the show on instagram facebook highly recommend that you do and uh, if you guys aren't already following the show on YouTube and TikTok. If you guys want to get clips and easy to share little portions of the show, that's the way to go. And I will be expanding the YouTube. I keep saying that, but uh, it's just a matter of getting some stuff coordinated and there will be a lot more video content. So if you guys want to keep tabs on that, make sure you follow the show on YouTube and TikTok. And the Discord is continuously expanding with each week, having new members pop in, having some awesome conversations. So if you guys want to join the fun, don't forget to go and uh, become a member of the Discord. And uh, if anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, or you're interested in having me as a guest on your show, or you're interested in sponsoring the show, get a hold of me in some way, shape, or form. The best way to do so is through increaseofallrealitypodcast.look.com. There is also a submission form for that that'll go directly to my email off of the link tree, or you guys can always get a hold of me through social media. And if anybody wants to report an encounter, I now have a new email set up for that specifically. You guys can go to the link tree and there is a tab for that one also. It says report an encounter. It should be about the third tab down or so. Uh, or you guys can always email ommencounterreports at outlook.com. And uh, if you guys can't get enough of the stuff that I do, don't forget to go and check out Bizarre Encounters, which is my other show that I do with my awesome co-host, Oren. We deep dive into a lot of fringe topics such as the paranormal, uh, cryptids, UFOs, aliens. It's a lot of fun. We have some interviews in the process, but the majority of that show is, of course, us deep diving and making jokes along the way. So if you want to learn and laugh all in one place, don't forget to go and check out Bizarre Encounters. And uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on everything that I do all in one place, don't forget to go and follow Open Minds Media across all forms of social media because I do have an account for that across just about anything that I have an account for this show and Bizarre Encounters. And if you guys want to support the show, there's a couple different ways to do so. Number one, of course, is to become a Patreon member. I recently updated all of those tiers, so there's a lot of new benefits, but you'll get things such as ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays of episodes, exclusive giveaways, exclusive merch store discounts. And like I said, for the higher tiers, there's a lot of new perks. Go and check it out. 
I think that you guys will be really happy with it. But if you guys have any other suggestions as far as the Patreon goes, I'm all ears and I would absolutely love to hear them. Uh, if you guys want to donate to the show directly, you guys can do so through Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, or Red Circle, which is the RSS host for the show. And if it doesn't give you some type of option for a personalized message, let me know what you guys donated because, of course, I want to give you guys a big shout out in the show. And number three is to go and check out the Open Minds Media merch store. You'll find stuff for inquiries of our reality, for Bizarre Encounters, and I'm starting to update some cryptid designs and different designs over there. Uh, as of right now, the Squonk design is up, but I got a couple other new ones that I will be working on and coordinating over there. So it isn't just a store for the podcast. It's also a store for everything all kind of accompanied all into one place, like I usually do with most of my stuff, all under Open Minds Media, of course. And the fourth way you guys can support the show is through leaving reviews or ratings for the show, or you guys can always share the show through word of mouth, all that all in one place. And uh, anything you guys do, I more than appreciate. And I wouldn't be doing this without you guys. I have to have to drop that in every now and then because you guys are the lifeblood of the show. And if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't be doing it in the first place. But uh, while we're also talking about supporting creators, don't forget to go and check out Joe at Crypto Theology. He has some of the best cryptid designs there are on the market. As far as merch goes, 90% of my closet is Crypto Theology. I pretty much only own Crypto Theology shirts, uh, some I Know Squatch shirts, and of course, podcast shirts that pertain to my show and stuff. But beyond that, that's beyond the point. Go and check out Joe. He's killing it. And he is also going to be doing Squonkapalooza 2, which I should hopefully be at next year. So if you guys are planning on coming out, let me know because I'll definitely be there. Whether I'm vending or speaking, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to it. So big shout out to Joe and Lisa from Cryptid Comfort for putting that event on and also doing a part two of it again next year. And hopefully they'll continue on each year and it'll just keep going on because it's a really, really fun event. And if you guys are in the market to get yourself a new paranormal investigation device, don't forget to go and check out Chattergeist. It's uh, one of the coolest things I've seen on the market. It's an all-in-one piece of paranormal investigating equipment. And if you guys have any specific questions, don't you guys can always go and uh, hit up Dimension Devices. He is the programmer of everything, so he can answer any tech questions you guys might have. He's the absolute best, and he's always here to help anybody that has any questions about any of it. And I do have an affiliate link for that down in the link tree. So if you guys are going to go and pick one up for yourself, don't forget to use my affiliate link. I would highly appreciate it. And uh, everything that I mentioned, of course, is all available under the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome back to the show for the third time now, Robbie Marks, artist, author, and researcher. All covering many bases because since I've met you, man, I feel like you started off just doing a little bit of research and you're starting to build up and it's a pleasure to have you on. That's all I can say, man, for the third time now. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun to come on and talk about uh, different you know, topics. So we get into some weird theories too, which is always a lot of fun because it's like a back and forth that I started the show on, you know, coming up with like theories and stuff. And I feel like you're one of the people that I get to have on that we get really, really deep into theories and research. So it's always a lot of fun, man. Right. So, um, yeah, basically, um, I don't know, before we jump in, probably talk about um, just the fact that I'm an artist. Um, I've been doing art for like 35 years now um i've been researching and going through these different various ancient texts for 30 35 years and it's just recently within the last year i guess that i've started getting on podcasts and talking about some of this stuff these different rabbit holes that i'm going down say and i remember uh from one of the previous episodes i think that what inspired you to start getting into the research was actually like listening to stuff while you're doing your art right so kind of one led into the other right 
Yeah, and I've been doing that for years. Um, just um, different audio books, you know, initially. And then once I got to the point where I could just take PDFs and dump them into an app and have the machine read it to me, I was, you know, that opened up, you know, broadened the extent of the stuff that I could get into more. So, um, but yeah, so um, basically tonight, um, the, one of my more recent rabbit holes I've gone down is this or these ancient oracular heads where basically um, they're essentially talking heads um, that are used to um, basically summon up these entities and um, precipitate some sort of a prophecy um, or, you know, asking questions, yes or no, um, you know, sh like, King, should I attack? Should I? Um, so we're basically going to um, walk through the theory of kind of what these things are and kind of look at them and bring them into modern times and um, how they relate to what's going on around us right now. Man, you talk about synchronicities. It's kind of weird that, you know, you kind of gave me like a quick over on what you want to talk about this time, but it seems like this is starting to be somewhat of a reoccurring thing about this idea about people being able to conversate with ancient beings and through different means of doing it and different means of, I guess, not necessarily getting possessed by them, but like taking them in so that they can become like a channel for them to be able to communicate through. It's, it's just really weird how all that stuff seems to place out because the last person I had on from the episode before this was talking about this whole concept on how people would uh, dress up as clowns and he believes that clowns are actually supposed to be depictions of Nephilim and the whole idea with that is that you can show stuff in front of people or you can have these things like take you over in front of people without them actually realizing it. So again, just right. kind of weird how everything kind of falls into place, man. <laughs> and, and that's uh, what is it? Uh, Pennyworth, the clown I think is the perfect representation of a Nephilim clown, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ain't that right. Yeah, yeah. Even the creature that he turns into <laughs> kind of fits the whole Nephilim oh, yeah. concept of like the unnatural yeah. beings that are half mixed well, with animal, half human. Right, and that's the whole thing. When you start looking at um, very much like the Nephilim clowns, um, kind of how they're bringing these entities almost out of the abyss and like um, using different mechanisms to bring them into um, our presence so that we can communicate with them. Well, well, in the Nephilim clowns, it's basically actually full bodily possession, you know, and, and, you know, that can go all kinds, but with these oracular heads, um, what we're looking at is basically, um, well, let's just let's just jump into it, um, because now in the beginning you have um, Plato and the idea of the uh, the universal man. So before the human was created on Earth, the human was created in the heavens, and that um, that Adam Cadman basically folds back over on himself and he is without a head and basically the the idea is the head is in the next realm right so it's basically the idea of being outside of this reality um kind of like the mind is more you know uh focused on the idea of thought which is not something you can behold you know um so basically if you take that as far as black magic and you invert it you would have a head with no body which connects to and is used to communicate with the spirits of the ancestors or the um, 
fallen Nephilim type spirits that have been encased in the black cube in the center of the earth in that timeless space, or like Apollo in the bottomless pit, you know, basically fluttering um, with, you know, no sense of sight or, or sound or anything. Um, so, and if we go back into the ancient myths, right. Um, as far as there's a Norse myth, we're looking back about 4,500 years, right? And there's this character Mim or Mimir that um, was decapitated in the Asair Vanir War. And then uh, once he was decapitated, Odin, the Allfather, you know, the chief god of the Norse pantheon, um, basically takes this head of um, Mimir and carries the head around with him. And Mimir was, you know, supposed to be the super wise individual, you know, while he was alive. But once he was dead, um, Odin would basically converse with the head and the head would tell him, like, ancient secrets of the universe and like all these uh mysterious you know um hidden subjects that um basically and also advise you know him with good counsel so you know these these heads they go they go way way back in time so you're talking literal talking heads not not like a figure of speech of talking heads no, I'm talking literal talking heads. Yeah, yeah. Well, but see, that's the thing is, as you go through time, um, you know, and as we go through the the notes I have here, you'll see how um, it kind of is one thing in in the mists of of ancient time, but as we come forward in time, um, it's almost like. Um, the process was well there's some talk that um only the great mahatmas um or atmans basically they knew how to basically do this process um so i think at a certain point maybe um it got really um it, it became hidden knowledge or it got lost altogether and they were creating simulacra of these heads essentially right mm -hmm. um but now if we go back to Thrace in uh, modern-day Greece, which is this area called Thraki, Thra Thraki, I think, yeah, um, we have the ancient character of Orpheus, who is, you know, we see in the Matrix. Um, and essentially, we're looking at about 450 B.C. And Orpheus was the one that made the lyre out of the turtle shell. And basically, uh, he uh, would play the music. And it was, you know, he could bring people into frenzy or he could, you know, bring them and put them totally, to, you know, to sleep. Um, but he actually made a golden lyre and presented it to Apollo um, and taught him how to play it. Um, and then, um, let's see. Now, what happened was one day, um, Orpheus, he wanted to go to the highest point um so he could greet the sun as it came up because apollo was essentially helios or the sun so he wanted to get those first rays of the sun and actually down the road um orpheus and apollo will actually set up kind of a little religious cult themselves and have their own little altar and little uh, temple going on as well but um orpheus is on top of this mountain um which happens to be where the temple of dionysus is and 
And uh, but he's there to greet Helios or Apollo when the sun rises, basically. And um, Dionysus gets super upset because Orpheus didn't come to worship him, right? So Orpheus, uh, yeah, uh, Dionysus sends out a group of. Uh, they're called Basarides, which were his female followers, basically. And um, they were worked up in like this drunken, um, frenzied state of a orgy. Um, and you get tales where, you know, these these groups of these women would go around and literally just tear apart cows and tear apart humans you know limb by limb because they'd be in this this ecstatic frenzied state from the substances they were participating in with uh, Dionysus and uh, weren't some so of those they, wines back then too they actually had like a psychedelic factor to them so they weren't just like alcohol like how we had them today they actually had like like an added psychedelic uh, aspect to them also Oh, yeah. Um, they would put mugwort in them. They would put mushrooms in them. They would put um, various different, you know, and the same thing with meads. A lot of these old world drinks were medicinal brews. Um, so these uh, these uh, basarides basically rip um, Orpheus apart, right? And... Um, as all this is going on, somehow some of the body parts end up in the river. And as Orpheus's head was floating down the river with the with the uh, lyre, and this is let's see what river I've got the river here. It's the Hebrus River. Um, as as Orpheus was floating down the river, um, just his head, it was still singing mournful songs, like you know, as it floated down the river and out into sea. And it eventually ended up on the island of Lesbos at the city of Methamena. And um, they basically took the head and in its honor, um, they buried it and it uh, became an oracle site where people would go to receive prophecy. And this was one of the most famous oracles um, at that time on Lesbos. And it was known um, as far away as Babylon. Kind of a weird thought process, but at least back in the day, did they kind of have this belief that like consciousness existed only within the head itself? So maybe theoretically, if you sever the head, then consciousness might be trapped within that head. Because I mean, you even hear about the different things with science where they say that for I don't I don't know the exact amount of time. It's some really short amount of time, like 10 seconds or 30 seconds. They say that your, your head is still like conscious even without the rest of your body. So maybe the idea behind it was that, you know, if you use like a spell or if you were some type of God or there's just something special to it that essentially the yep. consciousness gets trapped in the head until it gets actually laid to rest at that point. Right. Right. And, and the Celts actually believed that the soul was indeed in the head. And when they would go into battle, they would actually take heads and they would keep the heads and basically use them as magical talismans. You know, so, yeah, that is indeed um, uh, a part of the lore. You know, it's like collecting um, souls if you're collecting heads at that point. Yeah, kind of like you see uh, in Haiti, how they'll kind of collect souls in jars and kind of, uh, you know, use it, use them to go out and, and do things against people, you know, in the voodoo tradition. So you see a lot of stuff even within like popular culture movies, too, where they like reanimate heads specifically, not like the whole body. And they'll say like, oh, it's because, you know, you don't want the rest of the body because the zombies, blah, 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 blah. But realistically, I think it's actually like you were kind of digging into. It's actually linked to some old occult practice. 
that you only yeah. want to reanimate the head because that's where the consciousness is. And then essentially right. that, that being that person has no choice but to follow what you say because they can't physically do anything else about it. Because, I mean, even yeah. with, like, the Thor lore... Uh, not the word, the uh, Odin lore. Like, if he killed the guy, of course he isn't just going to work voluntarily, but if he only has his head, he has no other choice but to do what he asks. Otherwise, you know, he, he could suffer a worse fate. You know, the guy essentially is, like, holding his soul in his hand in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now, when you start getting into um, the Hebrew theology, as far as the rabbis, pre-biblical, um, these were classified, um, these talking heads were classified um, as illicit and invariable types of oracles, right? And they were in the same category as ornomancy, which is basically um, using your dreams to predict the future, as well as in the same category as necromancy, um, and basically, com you know, communing with the dead for the purpose of prophecy. Hey, you might not, you may know the answer to this, you may not, but just out of curiosity, there's like the whole lore about Medusa's head, and hopefully I'm not jumping ahead in this, but um, as far as like Medusa's head goes, I don't know, was there ever like a reference to her being in Hades after her head got chopped off, or was the whole idea that her soul was con was trapped within her head, and that's how he was still able to use it to turn people into stone after he had severed her head? I think when he severed her head, her head turned to stone. But if you look at the the movies, it's it hasn't turned to stone because the snakes are. That's a, that's a good one. But I don't recall um, Medusa speaking once her head was cut off. But I do remember so, the idea about him being able to use it still to be able to turn people into stone, though. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Let's see. So now when we look at the word um, teraphim, right, which is basically um, in the older lore, it's more related to the household gods. Right. Um, and there's a there's a whole classification of different types of um, they're classed um, in the category of idols, but not as being idols. Right. And they can either be dead or alive. So you can take things that are, you know, um, fleshly or you can take things that are um, like uh, mineral or um, like a tree. But the thing was, they always had um, the consistent factor of being part natural world and part metallic so they would um wrap um them in metal or somehow incorporate metal into it and it was always either um gold or silver or copper or brass all of which are electrically conducting metals so and and we're going to get into that whole factor as we move um forward and get up to like john the baptist so I mean, as part of that, do you think also just trying to like imprison the consciousness within the head by creating like a metal prison for it? You think that may may have been part of the idea behind it too? Yeah, I think what it was because if you get into the old um, Persian lore, um, they would actually take the heads and they would soak them in a brine, 
right? Almost like in, you know, brine and salt, which is electrically conductive, right? Um, and then they would take the head and generally put it on a charging plate, something that is either gold or silver, like how John the Baptist, they, you know, uh, she wants his head on a silver platter, right? Or a platter is what it says. Um, but basically, they, you know, so you have the salt and then you have the conductive metal. Um, and then there was in some tales, they would actually pull the tongue out and tattoo incantations on the tongue, right? And then um, there was like these blood pits where they would dig like a, a square pit and they would sacrifice um, usually like seven horses and collect, the, you know, and then the night that would draw the spirits in and then they would set this teraphim up and, you know, put in, you know, and, uh, put the incantations on the tongue and then the, basically through sympathetic magic, those spirits would come into the head and they could converse with them. And and basically uh, work to try to get some um, kind of information or prophecy. Um, and then when they were done, it was generally said that um, the heads would just howl throughout the entire night until the sun came up. So there's this there's this whole practice of uh, how you put these things together and how you bring this uh, energy into it to be able to facilitate the talking head itself. I mean, at least with the brine, too, obviously, for people that do fermenting, like brine is how you ferment. So do you think that part of the idea behind that may have also just been symbolic of trying to preserve life within the head? So if there is only like a little dampering left of consciousness, if you ferment it, you might be able to keep some amount of liveliness still to the head rather than it just instantly decaying right away and then losing anything that it may have to it. Right. And I think it was a way so that you would have them on hand when you needed them something along those lines because generally you know the fleshly body after three days you know it's going to start to putrefy so they had to have you know some mean to be able to facilitate um keeping them like you're saying fresh you know did they would they actually do you think uh was there any cases of them actually like leaving it in the brine for like when they wanted to use it or was it like as soon as this happened they would do that and then they would use them right away well within like a couple days at least yeah, it didn't really say. It just said heads in the, in the brine, <laughs> but, you know. So when you see a lot of this stuff, it's just like little tiny snippets. And then, of course, you know, the imagination just starts to be like, well, what are they exactly talking about here? You know, I'm kind of curious if they would purposely like leave heads in the brine until they were ready to use them. And they may have even had like stockpiles of different people's heads. Yeah. And it was just when they needed this specific person, then they would take it out of the brine and they, then they would like process it and put it on the right. plate and do everything else with it afterwards. Right. 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 Um, so now in Russia, um, Let's see, these, the lore, um, they called them the teraphim of the earth. And they said that they were from the subtle and fiery realm. And that when you would summon them up, they could be used to actually send psychic transmissions. So you could almost use this also as a communication device. So, Possibly. yeah, let's say you're just channeling through the head specifically. Correct, correct. Almost, uh like a like a radio set or something mm-hmm. you know where you're using it as a tuning device to pick up a, a certain frequency to be able to facilitate either talking to the underworld or sending a message out to someone possibly even with another head that's that's you know waiting 
for a message, you know. I if was you even say on this yeah, on this full moon, you know, we'll do the we'll do the ritual and I'll send you messages, you know, <laughs> something like that. Dude, I was even thinking too, they may have specifically just wanted to keep the head so that if, say, a dark spirit or some kind of dark being uh, chose to come in through it, then it can, they, again, they can't do anything. The worst they can do is attempt to bite if somebody like gets close to them or something. Yeah. But realistically, they can't physically like attack somebody at that point, even if something dark does come through. Right, right. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 just a really interesting um, rabbit hole that I kind of fell down in, and the further I got, the weirder it got, and um, I just ended up kind of putting this whole little narrative together, you know. Um, We're just scratching so the surface, and I'm already fascinated. I can't wait to see how right. weird this gets. <laughs> oh, it gets yeah. Wait, just it's uh, okay. So in a book called Some Heresies um, by Alexander H. Jopp. Um, he calls them the nourished ones. And um, he said that every day, like a well-cared-for teraphim um, would actually be brought out and oiled and taken care of and, like, polished up and kept nice. And um, and there's actually some cases of later, we'll talk about some of these alchemists um, that had some of these um, oracular heads that they carried around um, for, for, you know, years on end. Um so let's see. So, um, yeah, like we talked about, they were always part natural and part metallic. Um, let's see. Um, so it said uh, the active energy operating in the organism of the teraphim last in Hades are terrified are terrific in their manifestation and said to scream as if burning in sulfur. Um, let's see. Uh, well, and, and so that's the other thing. The word itself, teraphim, right, um, is also in the class of the angels as far as the um, the cherubim and the seraphim, and then you have the teraphim, right? Mm-hmm. Um and um, it says that the fallen angels, um, God in paradise in those mighty hosts of the seraphim, the cherubim, and the teraphim defied him. And it said that the teraphim specifically are damned from ever being restored. So essentially the cherubim and the seraphim, um, they're at, you know, at the end time, they're going to merge back with the, you know, the, the one, um, Godhead per se, whereas these teraphim were said to never be able to restore, um, themselves into the heavenly realms. They were always caught, you know, um, down into the, uh, the um, lower underworld of things, the timeless region of nothingness, you know? Um, I mean, if they're just straight talking to these through these things like telecommunication devices and they were talking about how they would scream at night, I almost wonder if it's like one of those things where it's the consciousness never actually fully comes back into the head, but rather they're speaking with the soul, so to speak, in another realm. And when the screaming happens is like, say that they're talking to a spirit that ended up going to the underworld. That's when they're going back to getting tortured and it's still making that communication where it's still transmitting both ways. I mean, you can look at it like the tra- like the consciousness is trapped in the head or you can just think of it straight as it's just, you know, somebody's in another realm and they're just talking in that other realm, but the head like is moving in said. the same way. Yeah, exactly. Like a radio yeah. head, like that's talking where they're at. So, you know, the communication doesn't stop. Then you're going to hear everything else that's going on in that realm later on right. past when you're communicating with them. 
Yeah, and that's kind of what I get out of it, too. Um, and here's the quote. It says, eternally, the teraphim lost consciousness existed in Hades. And it said they were damned in the inexpressible tortures um, existing in an unconsciousness for one-third of its duration in existence. So, yeah, I, th I definitely think that you're basically using that almost as a radio set to be able to facilitate channeling, you know? And then, so now when we get to 620 um, BC, um, the teraphims um, were banned by the Hebrew prophets and they were outlawed within Judaism, right? Um, and in the Bible, we have uh, several places where we see them. Um, in Ezekiel 21, the king of Babylon um, wishing for guidance, consults a teraphim regarding a route of an expedition. And it says, uh, standing at the parting of the way, he shook the arrows, consulted the teraphim, inspected the liver, in his right hand the lot, Jerusalem. And so basically um, the lot, um, what they would do in Arab culture is they had um, these arrows essentially that they would notch or they would write names on the arrows and they would wrap them in a conductive metal again and they would put them in a quiver and kind of put them under a sheet and shake them. And then while you were consulting and talking to the teraphim, you'd pull the arrow out and that would be your answer that you would get because um, a lot of times they had you know a hard time getting answers from these things or they would only answer in yes or no's right um, but uh, and, and eventually um, one of the one of the symbols of the teraphim um, that you would see was an arrow like a statue of an arrow that would be wrapped in gold and so that was a symbol of communicating you know with with the ancestors or the underworld itself you know mm -hmm. saying that's also um, semi is, is the idea behind that possibly like because you kind of keep getting back to this like idea of like electricity but if you like are wrapping it in a certain type of metal and you're shaking it around within the kit within your holster like if it has metal to the holster too, isn't it? Couldn't you theoretically be like conducting electricity within that if you were using the correct types of metals? Right, right. And just well, that's the whole thing is there. You know, with um, with these different types of magic, what they're generally doing is creating a sympathetic um, vibrational waveform that this entity um, is welcomed into. And then once it gets in there, then you kind of, you know, through these in incantations and all the different spells, you know, you kind of take control over it and, and try to facilitate getting information out of it, you know? So um, let's see, in Jude 17, um, the character of Micah um, built a private chapel with an ephod, which is a priestly garment, and a teraphim. Um, and then, oh, that's what it is. The ephod could be a statue of an arrow as well as the priestly garment, not the teraphim itself. Um, but the, the teraphim, um, they were sometimes also called, and you probably heard, the graven or molten image. Um, and let's see. Oh, and then in Jude 18, there's some traveling Danites, uh, the, the tribe of uh, 
Israel, the Dan, the Danites, um, which learned that Micah had this teraphim, and they immediately wished to quote unquote consult the oracle. So you know these were oracular devices that they were basically using to um, facilitate um, advice within their own life, as far as you know, um, asking for and and very much also like. Um, when you get into Laban um, later on before the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Um, Jacob and um, Esau, um, Jacob goes to Laban and he wants to marry Rebecca. And the first thing that Laban does is he consults the teraphim and um, the teraphim tells him, you know, tell, tell Jacob everything he wants um, you're going to do. And, you know, he's like, basically the Lord has blessed Jacob. So, you know, basically tell, him what he wants to his face and then do the opposite and basically trick him you know so Laban ends up getting um, Jacob in the service for seven years to marry Rebecca before they start the 12 tribes of Israel you know so we, we see it in a, a few different places um, let's see oh and then in Hosea 3 um, it says the Israelites shall abide without an ephod and a teraphim, basically warning against the practices of using these oracular heads, you know? Assumably, as, as this started kind of uh, venturing into, like, Christianity, um, I assume that they saw this as more of, like, a, like a demonic thing. And, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably get into it later on, so I haven't brought up the other concept that I kind of feel yeah. starts to connect into this as far as the occult goes, but... Um, so yeah, assumably like, cause you're just, uh, contacting the spirits from the underworld. It doesn't seem that you're doing it the other way. So it just eventually became like a demonic practice and assumably was outlawed as Christianity was starting to take over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Um, but when we get to the care, this is where it really gets, it gets interesting is the character of John the Baptist. Right. And, um, so in the histories, King Herod, wanted John the Baptist dead for what he was preaching on the transubstantiation of the soul as far as being able to ascend into higher realms um, and claiming that he had been, quote-unquote, reborn through the baptismal process, right? And so for this, John the Baptist was arrested. And in uh, Matthew 14, 6, on Herod's, King Herod's birthday, um, the daughter of Herodus dances for the guests and she pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for and um, prompted by her mother um, she said give me here on this platter the head of John the Baptist right so here we have essentially in the Bible the head the decapitated you know head with the charging plate like all together right mm -hmm. and so what's interesting, though, is that um, th this family, um, that uh, the dancer and the mother, um, they were part of the former dynasty of the um, Idumean or the Edomite, right, um, of the uh, Heronia dynasty. And they were forced to convert to Judaism in the second century. Um, but traditionally... This culture, um, they would use mummified heads, 
which would be mounted on a metallic charging plate um, as a teraphim for prophecy. So this is something that, that, you know, the tribe that they came from was actually documented of doing, you know. Um, let's see. And now, are you familiar with Tracy Twyman? I don't think so. No, she was a uh, a cult researcher. She got really into a lot of uh, um, deep, dark rabbit holes on stuff. Um, she did a whole thing with um, Ouija boards, and she was like communicating with Baphomet and Lucifer in her book, Clock Shavings. Um, I'll have to look into this. <laughs> yeah, she goes, well, she's passed away since. Um, but, she, you know, she did some really good stuff. And um, for a minute there, me and her were in a little bit of communication, you know, back and forth, um, having a couple conversations. Um, but Tr- Tracy, um, she relates that um, the head of Baphomet, right, um, as a vessel for prophecy. Um, and this is the head that is in the um, Vatican archive, essentially. Um, it's called put L-V-I-I-I-Q or head 58 essentially is what it is, right? And this was a head that was in possession of the Knights Templar, right? And the Knights Templar were actually highly trading in religious artifacts. So they would have, you know, um, hand bones, finger bones, hair, um, pieces of the cross, the Shroud of Turin, you know, the head of John the Baptist. Um and um they called it head 58 so that assumably means that they probably had 57 other heads at least (laughs) that's what i'm thinking so how many teraphim how many of these talking head class teraphims does the vatican actually have in its archives if this is head number 58 you know um again it's it's the the stuff you don't know that makes all this stuff the more interesting and reading between the lines. Cause again, yeah. why would it be labeled 58 if there wasn't at least 57 other ones? <laughs> right. Right. And who are the other 57? That's another really good question to begin with too. Right. Right. But now also, um, there's a, um, a shrine, a Muslim shrine called San Silvaresto. Um, that's inside the, Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, Syria, that also purports to have the head of John the Baptist. So, and it's like with a lot of these um, Catholic relics, um, because when you get into the Catholic relic system, um, every time they open a chapel, a church, or or you know one of their facilities for a temple for prayer, basically, um, part of the Catholic process is they will actually send a relic from a saint to that church and they will you know place it under the sepulcher under the altar so every catholic church has some sort of a um, necromantic um, piece of a saint that is entailed in the building process of the church so again when you get into you know the um the household gods um in a way this kind of calls back to the teraphim you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And actually, it was really funny that you brought this up because I was listening to, I think it was it was either Lore or Cabinet of Curiosities the other day, and they were talking about the whole concept about how people would 
uh, either one, they would like imprison themselves within a house or they would put like a body in a house for luck or they would like imprison somebody's like shadow in a, in a house for luck. So assumably like there has to be something besides just the structure of the building that makes the building itself holy. So right. it would make a lot more sense even just off of the luck aspect and off of that, that they would have to have some piece of like a saint or something. But right. I mean, at least for... When it comes to to like the Christian stuff in in particular, it's kind of weird that it's almost like they take like a pagan tradition and then they roll it into a lot of like the Christian beliefs, which I mean is pretty prevalent. You see that through a lot of things, and I mean there may be something to it that there is again like not just a symbolic meaning, but there actually is a real world process of doing things like this. And and just another kind of funny thing to mention too, uh, with like a lot of different like movies, for example, you see this whole idea that up underneath where the front of the church is at, there's usually this little trap door that leads into this whole other secret area within the church. And they talk about this whole idea of like hiding the occult right in front of people in plain sight so that they don't realize it. And it just makes you wonder what might actually be at some of these churches. And even within the church, I mean, there's obviously like the, the full on believers that are viewing it from like the Christian perspective, but there's always corruption within everything. So, I mean, there's assumably going to be a handful of churches, you know, even if you want to say that one for every hundred, there's got to at least be one that is looking at this stuff from the occult pagan side of things slash satanic, whatever, whatever religion they kind of want to base themselves in. And they're using this stuff in not the, the positive Christian way that they intend with like having pieces of the saints, but rather using it for channeling other things or trying to be able to see the future, for example, to start maybe trying to deter away from that. Like there's, there's other practices that are hidden within the practice and the corruption takes advantage of those being there. Right, right. Well, and that gets into the whole black masses and all the, you know, in, in bringing the host into the to the wafer and then adulterating the wafer like you're, you know, doing bad things to Christ Himself. So the the Satanists, you know, believe it's uh, yeah that whole that whole thing of um, nefarious um, and and you see it consistent. Like what was it in the Middle Ages? Uh, midi- I think not the Middle Ages, medieval times. Um, you see all the paintings where they're wearing like super sharp shoes and cod pieces. And if you go back and you get into the history, um, those guys that were wearing those types of outfits were the Satanists. And, you know, you look back and, but unless you went back and researched that, you would never know that there's this whole period of of works with, you know, just a mass amount of of Satanists, like in the, uh, in the pieces, you know, but that goes into the occult, you know, Renaissance church of Rome and, the two Peters and the founding of, of the Vatican and, you know, whether or not it was uh, Saul Peter or whether it was Simon Peter, you know, a lot of people think that the church was actually founded by Simon. When you go back and if you read Alexander Hillsop's two Babylons, it's a, it's a pretty interesting little debate back and forth between, you know, the, the positive and the negative forces that run um, the churches themselves, you know, it's kind of weird that all of the, I feel like there's a lot of occult meaning hidden within shoes. Like you have the whole like red shoes club concept. Um, you have that back in the day where they had the curly shoes and then even digging into like modern day stuff. You had the whole thing with, uh, that one rapper. What's his name? Um, was it Nas X or whatever, where he was putting yeah. like the blood drop within shoes in the shoes. I remember and that it wasn't mass produced, but it was at least his shoes. Like there's something yeah. to the yeah. occult with shoes, even if it's just a matter of like presenting yourself, like there's something 
deeper to it. And I feel like that might be another good rabbit hole to look into one day is like why shoes specifically. Well, and also when you get into the whole shoe thing, it's interesting how we're trained now to wear shoes all the time, almost as a safety thing for our feet. But when you get into the grounding issues and the fact that we're always walking around on some sort of rubber that is separating us from the electromagnetic plane of the earth itself, you know, and getting into grounding and what that does to the body itself, um, shoes are... Yeah, shoes are an interesting little rabbit hole of themselves, you know? It's like separating uh, you from the heavenly, and depending on how you're looking at it, it's either separating you from Mother Earth or it's separating you from the heavenly and God's creation. Yeah, yeah, you know? And, I mean, it, you know, I could go down so many rabbit holes on this, um, but I'll say I'll say one last thing and then we'll get back online. Um, but back in a lot of the old cultures, there was this idea of when, um, like the uh, the sacred priest or the priestess or the shaman was born into the tribe, um, they would keep them elevated off the earth. And they wouldn't ever let them touch the earth. And if they did, it would spoil their holiness, right? So they would literally keep girls um, like elevated hanging in things sometimes, um, in elevated huts, in all these different ways um, to keep them from never touching the earthly plane, you know. Um, yeah, there's there's a whole thing in regard to um, how that affects the individual. I mean, uh, who knows? Are they are they trying to say we can all turn ourselves into gods by separating ourselves? I mean, that's kind of what the transhumanist kind of you know meme is, which is what we're going to kind of get into as we continue later on in this. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now there was. Um, this writer, um, Idris Shaw, who is an Afghan Sufi teacher, right? And he argues that Baphomet is actually the head of a mystic named Halaj, um, who is revered by the Sufi sect, right? And this mystic Halaj, he was executed for telling about his spiritual experiences. And after his decapitation, um, the caliph's queen mother had the head embalmed, and eventually through trading hands, it came into the possession of certain Sufi masters who revered it for its magical prophecies of uh, magical powers of prophecy. And um, this Halaja um, was said to also be um, a widow's son, much like Horus, right? And um, Idris Shah, the author, he believes that not only was the head the Baphomet, but he was also the model for Hiram Abiff in the Temple of Solomon before the Templars. So he's going, he's going back you know, to the founding of the Sufis. Side question too: When they're talking about Baphomet's head, are they talking about like the goat head, or are they talking about like the hu like a human head of Baphomet? Well, so when you get into the Knights Templar, right, when they made their confessions um, under duress and under torture, um, multiple of them said that they were worshiping the head of the, they were worshiping the Baphomet. And then that is directly tied in with the head of John the Baptist. So there's this whole dichotomy of um, what the Baphomet is. I mean, the Baphomet that we see and, and you know, um, 
um, speaking of the goat's head, you know, you you have the head and you're bringing that, you know, um, when you flip a man upside down, you're essentially, you know, bringing, putting him into the underworld. Whereas maybe with the Baphomet, you're bringing the underworld into the head, you know. But basically, it goes back to the fact that they they had John the Baptist's head. Um, some some even say it was uh, Hughes de Payne's head, um, the the head of the first Grand Master um, of the Knights Templar, you know. Um, and so let's see. Now, regarding John the Baptist, um, in 1871, Albert Pike, um, who we know, um, was a Scottish Rite Freemason, um, in his Morals and Dogma, he says that the Johnanites, which are the worshipers of John, which are these Knights Templars, essentially, right? Um, they ascribe to St. John the foundation of their secret church in a line of pontiffs handed down from St. John in uninterrupted secession. And they believe that this uh, one of the pontiffs that was, uh, you know, uh, consecrated in this line was um, one of the Templars named Theoset. Um, who initiated Hughes de Payne, basically the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar, right, into these mysteries. And um, let's see, uh, Albert Pike says, thus the Knights Templar at its very origin was devoted to the cause against Rome and against the crowns of kings. So um, basically the Knights Templar... Um, are believed to be um, by all outward you know information um followers of um saint john or john the baptist um and they revere john over jesus in regard to who they believe the messiah was right um and then also the mandeans um believe that john the baptist was the true prophet as well right Kind of so a weird concept I wanted to throw into about John the Baptist saying that he transcended after he was baptized. Uh, a lot of people may not realize it, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is at least the understanding that I had, that not, obviously modern day, it's changed a lot, but back in the day when you would be baptized, they would essentially hold you underwater until you stopped breathing, so you'd have that moment with God, and then you would come back, and then it, obviously you can't be doing that to people in a present day church, because who knows who's actually going to wake back up, so they steered away from that, but the original concept was basically you got drowned and you had a near-death experience. Right, right. That's the way I understand it as well. Yeah. So, um, now the Knights Templar, um, they were up until 1307. Um, they were founded in 1109 um, as the Teutonic Order. Um, and roughly 100 years after they were founded, they became associated with the Orders of the Assassins, right? And, and I don't know if you're familiar with Hassani Sabah and the Old Man in the Mountain and the story of the ancient Hashashins. Um, that were basically so Hassani Sabah. Um, he had this um, fortress on this mountain called the Eagle's Nest, which I think is where uh, Himmler got the name for the Eagle's Nest for the Nazi Party, um, as far as his little castle, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Hassani Sabah, um, this Hashashin, because they were using hashish. 
um, basically for these assassins, right? And um, there was two types of uh, hashish. There was the brown hashish, which was a cannabis-based, and then there was a red hashish, which was an opiate-based. But nonetheless, they would take these initiates, these people they were bringing in um, to initiate into the hashishines, and... Um, this is kind of a sidebar as far as the talking heads, um, but basically they would dose them up with the with the drug, and then they would pass out um, because they had taken so much of it. And when they would kind of wake up and they'd be in that super hazy state, they would bring them into this area where they had actually dug pits in the ground, and they would they put a person down in the ground, and then they would put a platter around their head to make it look like it was a decapitating head and they would have the decapitated heads on platters like talking and then they would have all the fruits and all the pleasures and the 72 virgins and all the things promised you know in the afterlife and basically recruit them into the hashishines um, but then these talking heads which weren't actually talking heads um as as a uh um, reinforcer after you know they would give them some more of the hashish and they'd pass out again and they'd take them back to their original location and then they would take the heads that they saw of the people talking and they would actually cut them off and put them on pikes so that they would be like those are the heads you know so th this is all brainwashing and recruitment tactic but that ended up leading to the public, some of the first terrorism, basically, where these hashashines would get in tight with different governmental bodies. And then at, like, you know, uh, high points in the, the politics, they would publicly, you know, pull out a dagger and, stag you know, stab them in the heart for that public um, reaction of chaos so that they could use the chaos to basically, you know, uh, order out of chaos, like it says, you know, um, on various monikers of these different organizations, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, false little heads, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, Tracy Twyman, again, back to her, um, she may be one of the reasons that I started getting into this whole severed head thing because she was going on for quite some time about the whole John the Baptist thing, right? Um, so I went back and in her, some of her um, old magazine articles that she did, um, she did one called The Severed Head That Wouldn't Die. And um, this relates to the legend of the Teutonic Templar who was the Lord Sidon. Right. And Lord Sidon was in love with Yise, which they believe is essentially Isis and who was said to have died suddenly. Right. And on the on, when they were burying her, basically this Teutonic Templar Sidon, he went to the grave after everybody was, you know, had left and dug her up. And basically copulated with the body. So we're looking at necromancy, right? Um, and then nine months later, while he was just minding his own business, um, kind of out of the void, this disembodied voice um, came to him and told him to return to the grave where he found a severed head sitting on top of two thigh bones. 
So essentially, this is the origin of the skull and bones, or the cro- skull and crossbones, or the um, skull and bones fraternity at Yale University. Um, also, the Knights Templar used the skull and bones for one of their monikers. Um, you get into the Nazis using the skull and bones for the Sufslafa and SS. You know, um, is there also so a tie with like the Jolly Roger and like pirates as far as the skull and bones concept goes? I would believe so, um, because later it was uh, it was Queen Elizabeth and John Dee that authorized the first privateers to go out, um, basically as a tool of war to plunder, um, and authorize the pirates, you know, to go out. Um, and, so and, the pirates are probably founded from a cult practice, and then it just kind of transitioned later on yeah. into people just being outlaws. But the original pirates were probably pirates. occultists. Yes. Yes, and high-ranking members of aristocratic families um, that were, you know, off into alchemy and occult and all these different practices, and basically looking for any way to make money, you know. And they had the Indian Tea Company and kind of, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth I with John D. basically authorized the privateers, you know, to go out and pl- under the authority of the queen, you know. The first pri- pirates were authorized, you know. Um so then, let's see, um, now he was told, once he found this head sitting on top of these skull and crossbones, um, he was told the, to guard the head as it would be the giver of all things as an oracle. And he guarded it the rest of his days, and, and it protected him, it says, right? And later, when it came into the possession of the Order of the Knights Templar, it was incorporated into their rituals. So here we have another head, you know, that's not John the Baptist. That's that's um, basically the individual that initiated the first Templar into these mysteries, you know. And uh, then also in the Bible, we have Zechariah, and he says... Uh, the teraphim have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, right? So we're, we're kind of slowly moving into the future, you know? Um, let's see, and I've got the Jacob and Laban thing. We can skip over that. Um, and then I've also heard some relation um, with this whole matter in regard to in Egypt, um, the high priests of Serapis. Um, would basically um, do rituals to enchant mummies, and they would have the opening of the mouth ceremony, the opening of the ears, the opening of the eyes, and they would basically stuff the head with these different herbs, you know, and and basically kind of um, use these devices for, like, astral travel and going into alternate realities, you know? I was waiting Um, for Egypt to come up. I knew that there was going to be some connection with Egypt in these talking heads, too. Yeah. And I, I think that, honestly, um, when you get into a lot of the Persian um, stories, that I think they came out of Egypt because it's always it always has to do with um, um, enchanting a like you get this mummified head in a lot of places when you're going through and and looking at these sources, you know. So I think there is definitely something to the um, mummification or the the nature in which they treat the head to be able, you know, to facilitate the process, basically. 
kind of a weird concept too, but they talk about the whole like hidden passage possibly being underneath the Sphinx's foot and Egypt right. is extremely open to anybody going and exploring anything, but they don't let anybody go and check that out. Even though people have done sonar, they know that something's there. Yep. You know, everybody assumes it's the hall of records. I wonder if this hall of records could also theoretically contain some heads. And there's the whole idea about these giants existing in Egypt. I wonder if they, the reason why you're not finding all the bodies, you're not finding all of this stuff is because they were, hoping to basically just entrap the heads and they probably just threw the rest of the body in a pit somewhere because they wanted to like cut down the royalty because they didn't want these giants ruling them anymore. But they're still seeing it as these giant heads that could have essentially be, you know, preserved could be like a hall of records because you can ask them any question. You have any, any answer at your disposal, depending on which one of the heads you'd want to choose to talk to. Well, and that's the other thing is um, the giant, you know, as far as the Nephilim themselves, um, they were, you know, you get into uh, some of the Sumerian and Babylonian titles of them, and they were called those who wander in sorrow. And it was the idea that when they died, basically they were, you know, trapped in Matrix. They had to stay within the uh, ecosystem of of the three dimensional world, you know, and so basically that's why they're spiteful and wrathful, and and you know, so when you're using any of these irregular devices for oracle purposes, um, you're essentially summoning the same spirits that would have occupied the giants of the days of old. So, yeah, essentially it could just be a doorway into all of these things that are stuck roaming the earth because their heads are preserved somewhere on the planet still. Uh, man, it, well, and you, I don't know, if you get into uh, fundamentalists like Steve Quayle and his, his talk about, you know, um, the military over in the Middle East basically chasing down giants and, like, uh, if they got too close, the mind power of the giants could basically kill them just with their, their you know, um, emittance of their or auric field basically you know so but that's more modern lore i mean steve quayle is a really interesting um case study um he's got the uh genesis 6 um giants book that he put out he's got you know he's kind of uh been on the giant tip for the last like 30 years or something man you know so yeah he doesn't do a lot of talking anymore but back in the day when he was on coast to coast all the time man he would go pretty crazy with that stuff dude it would know? completely make sense though because at least like as far as a lot of the encounters you hear where people aren't just seeing from a distance in the military but actually like firsthand interacting with them like such as the giant of kandahar or any of the other weird tales that the military has as far as like the up close and personal with them they always describe them like the biblical giants with the whole concept of the red hair uh six yep. fingers and toes two rows of teeth and some of those um some of those interactions are coming from not just people that are religious that would actually know this background of stuff but non-religious people too that are describing them the same way but i mean right. even within the people that are religious like unless you're into that stuff specifically like you're not necessarily going to know that offhand it's not like the bible has continuous descriptions of these things and how they have two rows of teeth and six fingers and red hair it's like when right. you start digging into everything else you start realizing this is a connecting factor and it's almost like not to bring sasquatch into the fold or anything but it's one of those characteristics that exist globally 
that there's the hairy man concept that's global. Like they look the same everywhere with little variations. Same with the giants. You have like all the giants that the natives chased into the, uh, into the cave and then set fire to the cave. Uh, you have, you know, like I said, the giant of Kandahar, uh, all these different giant stories. They're always red haired, two rows of teeth, six fingers and toes. Right. And that goes back to all the stories of the bright and shining ones, you know, the pre-Diluvian um, like characters. And even Noah himself was said to be born white as snow with red hair and his eyes glowed like lanterns, you know. So um, and then, the you know, the Bible says that um, basically he was the only pure one left. Whereas if you get into the Babylonian texts, they say that he was the preserver of of the hybrid line. So, and Noah is actually cursed in a lot of the Babylonian texts, you know? So yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting when you start walking down those, those roads, man. Um, and just so a refresher too, for the last episode, if people didn't happen to listen to it, the whole concept with clowns and giants with even like the giant shoes are supposed yeah. to represent giants. The reason why they have little objects is to represent how big they are, the red hair, the white skin, like, again, it's yep. perfect if these episodes fell how they did because it, like, explains this whole backstory, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, the, and so these, essentially, the spirits that these devices, these auricular heads are calling up are those spirits of the ancient Nephilim that are trapped in Matrix in the center of the Earth in the timeless black cube, basically. Right? Um so let's see now 50 bc right the poet virgil who i i read a lot of virgil i love virgil stuff um for anybody that may not realize it also is the guide for dante alighieri in the divine comedy (laughs) right at least through dante's inferno yeah yeah exactly and um virgil is also the first one that ever used um the term uh, as far as the terminology new order of the ages or the new world order so that goes all the way back to like 83 bc i believe right um uh, but but virgil um who was believed to be a medieval sorcerer um was said to have created his own oracular head um in um, this book, Gutierre de Metz. Um, Gutierre de Metz is the author, and the book is the Image of the World. And in um, 1245, he said that, that Virgil's head was made of brass. So this is where we start to see the emergence. If your business earns millions or tens of millions in revenue, stop what you're doing and take a listen. Because NetSuite by Oracle has just rolled out the best offer we've ever seen. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to make better decisions faster. And for the first time in NetSuite's 22 years as the number one cloud financial system, you can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. That's no payment and no interest for six months. And you can take advantage of this special financing offer today. NetSuite is number one because they give your business everything you need in real time all in one place to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity across every department. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. If you've been sizing NetSuite up to make the switch, then you know this deal is unprecedented. No interest, no payments. Take advantage of this special financing offer at netsuite.com slash strategy. netsuite.com slash strategy.
to get the visibility and control you need to weather any storm. NetSuite.com strategy. And the change from the, the teraphim, the living heads, um, into these brazen heads where they're actually making um, the heads out of bronze. And then they're, they're doing different things to enchant these entities into them you know, into these brazen heads is what they're called. So, and we have a whole um, secession. Um, we have the hero of Alexandria, who was a Greek mathematician and engineer. And he wrote two books on steam, water, and air-powered device um, called the Pneumatica and the Automata. And... Um, which were known to medieval Islamic scientists with old drawings of mechanical devices and talking heads. So all the way back in, uh, what is it, 1245, we're getting, um, no, 60 AD, we're getting some of these early drawings of, and, and that's the thing. So I think that um, in some cases, some of these brazen heads, they're creating them to basically like Roman statuary, right? They would create a, a bronze statue of a god, and they would leave it hollow, and then they would fill it up with oil. And that the oil in it would basically be like a substrate for these entities to get into and be able to live. And you had these, these living oracular statues, right? And I think they're kind of doing the same thing with the heads. But at the same time... We're also seeing the beginning of making these simulacra of these heads where they're almost like um, mechanical devices, almost like um, the process is being lost. So we're starting to see uh, simulacra um, take over in regard to, um, well, if we can't summon the entities up, we're going to make these heads that are like Zoltan, you know, well, and, and a lot of times, you know, these, these, uh, heads, these brazen heads would simply give you a yes or a no answer. And that was it. Whereas a lot of these other heads, you know, they were physically having conversations and interacting with them. So we start to see this difference right about the time, of of you know zero and and the whole christ phenomena and the the coming of the church basically is when this phenomena you know the teraphim starts to disappear and these brazen heads um or these mechanical heads start to come in and take their place Another sidebar off of this one, too, is this around the same time that, like, busts started becoming more popular, too? Because, I mean, that those go into, like, Romans, and they go into Greek concepts, but those are made out of porcelain, so it's a little bit different. But is it still kind of, like, playing along the same lines that there, there may have been an intention for that, maybe? Like, such as when the person dies that you made a bust of, it's, like, a temporary placeholder for them until you can, like, possibly process their head or something, for example, because it's not the right material, but it might be, like, like a place that they can stay temporarily until they can preserve their head or something. Well, and if you look at a lot of the busts, um, they were using marble. They were using different types of stone that had um, electrical properties about them, you know? So it's, I mean, as far as uh, the ancient, you know, um, mystics, you know, what they were, what they were uh, doing, man, it's, 
it's a lot of dark holes, you know, a lot of uh, assumptions made um, because we really don't have a lot of that information, you know. Like you were saying too, I mean, rather than it actually being fully conductive, it's more of like a like a battery if you're looking at it from that way. Because if you're making it out of a right the right type of material, um, you know, the battery isn't necessarily the thing that's going to be operating. It's just the thing storing the power for that time being until it gets right. used by the thing that's operating it. So these bus right. could have been essentially just the the battery that it can sit in until you actually move the consciousness or whatever it happens to be into yeah. something that you can actually like interact with and use at that point. Right, right, right. It's a possibility. It's a possibility. Um, I'm surprised you don't see like quartz heads or something, for example. I mean, there probably is some, but I mean, feel like quartz seems to be a heavy thing when it comes to all this stuff. Yeah, you go down into the South American quartz skulls, man. That's true. Yeah, right there. (laughs) And those are supposed to be storage devices that are supposed to have some, you know, mass amounts of information that some people have tapped into and like basically been shown visions when they touch them, things like that. And then you get into, you know, Indiana Jones and talking about, you know, it's not, you know, outer space, it's like interdimensional, you know. So even Indiana Jones, I think, is telling us that that this is all like interdimensional workings. You know? I just want to throw that out there too, that it's not owned it wasn't owned by Disney originally, but it's owned by Disney now. And Disney's a bunch of occultists and they're still working on the Indiana Jones movies and they bought the rights to them and all that. So like there may be more of a reason than people realize that they bought the rights to these Indiana Jones movies. Like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's hidden within movies. That's just continuing an occult practice. So it's like you're hiding information within that movie. Cause that's probably the best way to do it in modern day. But if you own the rights to that movie, then even if you don't want to mass produce it, you have this record of these secrets that are being stored within this movie forever. Like it's, it's yours, your right. possession. Nobody else can even try to mimic it. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. they're going into like copyright infringement. So essentially you could own these occult ideas by pretending like somebody's plagiarizing a movie that you own the rights to. Right. And all of these, like the Marvel movies, when you start really looking at them, they are just retelling the stories of the ancient gods. I mean, you shit, know. there's Thor. <laughs> like, it's going to oh, be yeah. more to the point with that oh, one. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and Wonder Woman is Diana. And you can just, I mean, correlations are, are you know, blatantly obvious in a lot of cases, you know. Um, so now let's see, uh, 60 AD, um, we have, uh, oh, I already said that one. Let's go to the next one. Um, in, okay, this is a, this is a good one. Um, let's see. Okay, so in 111 AD, right, we have Bran the Blessed, who is a giant of Britain um, in Welsh mythology. And um, in war, this character Bran the Blessed, he becomes mortally wounded, and he tells some of these other survivors to cut off his head and return just his head to Britain, right? And for seven years, um, these other survivors basically are entertained by Bran the Blessed's head, um, and it continues to speak um, to them for an extended period of time. And then um, they end up getting lost on Gawales, which is Glasshome Island off Defed. And they said that while they were there, um, they were unable to perceive time. Right. And then finally, um, when they finally do return the head back to Britain, um, at that point, it had lost all its animated spirit. 
So it took like, you know, um, you know, 14, 15 years of them carrying this head around, um, you know, and it was entertaining them, telling jokes, conversating with them. Um, and so basically they took this head of Brand the Blessed in, in England, right? And they buried it facing towards France um, to ward off the plague, to ensure f- fertility, um, and to protect the city from invaders. Um, and where they buried it is on White Hill. And basically, this White Hill is what they believe to be where the Tower of London is now. So essentially, where the Tower of London is, um, it's built on top of one of these oracular talking heads from this giant um, brand, the Blessed. <laughs> and it's funny, again, that you brought up Britain, because, again, with that other thing I was listening to the other day about trying to basically put bodies into like the foundation of a building in order to protect the building. They talk about the whole like London Bridge is falling down concept that, you know, there was a lot of people that they believe were were the people would die building it and stuff. And they would just put them inside of the building for luck to be able to protect that. So, again, this seems to be a pretty common practice across most of Britain, even if it's hidden within their folklore, like it's still there. And I'm sure that a lot of people that were doing this knew that there was the ties to it. But to the average person, they're saying, oh, it's for luck, not letting them realize that there was actually an occult tie meaning to it. Yeah, it's uh, well, and even the Brooklyn Bridge, man, has a bunch of bodies. Uh, what is it? The Hoover Dam has a bunch of bodies in it. Like, I think any of these, any of these major earthworks projects, um, you end up having, for some reason, bodies contained within these structures through the course of building them, which is just interesting in itself. I mean, how many people fell into like cement while doing a building and not to get too woo woo or weird with it, but you know, that could have been intentional. Um, maybe not necessarily like, Oh, somebody pushed them, but if there are dark beings around or things that are aware of these occult practices, you know, there's the power of like manipulation. And if you change somebody's perspective theoretically and you know, they get a little bit disoriented, they fall into it and then it's like, boom, got another one, save it, cement them down. (laughs) It's uh, very Sopranos. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, the mob was linked into the occult too, apparently. I mean, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. You go back to the, the original stuff in Sicily, you know. Um, so now in uh, 777 AD, we have um, this group uh, uh, called the Sabians of Haran, right? And this was an Islamic sect in Syria. And they used talking heads and rituals, basically. Um, and in the book, The Arabic Hermes by Bladell, um, describes a festival with a ritual involving a decapitated boy whose head is placed on an altar where it howls. And the howling was used to predict the future of the Sabian people. And the Sabian people are described as star worshipers and dedicated this festival to the god Mara Samya which it translates to the blind Lord, which is also essentially the appellation that's giving to um, Samael, who is uh, basically the one who draws down over the earth in Hebrew literature that has um, 12 wings um, and is the Lord of the air or the Lord of the earth, basically Lucifer himself, you know? Mm-hmm. 
so we can see that it always for some reason you know that it's the household gods communicating with the ancestors being these ancient nephilim spirits that are you know summoned forth um let's see so from 750 to 887 um the carolingian dynasty um that that preceded the merovingians um now, this, the Carolingians were Frankish nobles who ruled over um, Western Europe, basically Germany. And um, they were purported to use a brazen head for oracular purposes. So we can just see that, you know, this, this practice um, as it's slowly, you know, coming into the future. I mean, we're almost up to a thousand. So, um but yeah, it's it just uh, it's interesting how you know we're moving away from those organic teraphim um, into the more brazen um, heads, you know. Um, in 1125, William of Malmesbury, in his The History of the English Kings, details rumors around Pope Sylvester, who had traveled to Al Andalus and stole a tome of secret knowledge, only escaping with the help of demonic assistance, right? And uh, from this stash of secret stolen information, um, he cast a head of a statue, and with the knowledge of astrology, animated the brazen head. This head was silent until spoken to, and only would answer yes or no. So I, I think we're getting more into these these type heads where, you know, basically it's like, you know, you get a yes or a no answer. So it's it's just interesting, you know. And then so um, 1244, Robert Gross et Estes, um, the Bishop of Lincoln in England, um, constructed a head of brass to make it to tell such things as befell. This head he kept for many years, but it was destroyed through 30 seconds of neglect, uh, most likely in a ritual. So, you know, um, these things had to be maintained. Um, they had to be treated a certain way. Um, in 1250, Robert Bacon, now this is not any relation, I mean, maybe down the road, but this is 300 years before Francis Bacon, right? Um, so Roger Bacon, who was a reputed who is reputed to be a wizard, is documented to have had a magical or mechanical head. And this head could answer any question put to it with a yes or no. And it was with the help of a friar named Bungie. They, they had spent seven years building this head for the reason of wishing to discover if they could make Britain impenetrable by wringing the entire city with a wall of brass, right? And in their attempts, they were only able to um, lure a demon into the head only one time, and they couldn't get any information out of it one way or the other. And in the end of the experiment, the head was said to either have collapsed on itself or to have exploded. <laughs> so, 
Talking about these mechanical heads, I don't know if you've connected this, but it's something that I've been kind of thinking about, especially when you started explaining doing the outer casing and then putting a liquid inside in order to preserve something. And especially when you start talking about the yes and no answers, talk about occult things being hidden within children's toys. Like you have like the Ouija board, for example, that they market as like a child's yep. toy, essentially, but it's got occult that links. That, yeah, that's what I was about to say. The magic eight ball. It sounds like yep. exactly this concept that the head is the round sphere. I'm assuming that the eight on the top probably has some type of meaning to it, or maybe it's like a specific part of the brain, or if you cut a brain serpent. in half, it has that shape. Or what yep. were you saying? The serpent? The serpent or infinity? Yep, or infinity, yeah. Magic eight ball is an occult practice about this talking head concept that's hidden right in plain sight that people don't realize. Right, right. Um, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, okay. Um, in 1267, um, you probably heard of Albertus Magnus. Um, he was an acclaimed alchemist and astronomer. Um, and he's also considered to be one of the 37 donors to the Catholic church, basically setting down doctrine of the Catholic church. Right. Um, and he's called St. Albert the Great, um, or Albert of Cologne, Germany, and it's just a brief mention. It said he had a head with a human voice and a certain reasoning process. Um, this head was given to him by a cacodemon, which is essentially an evil spirit, right? Um, and Albertus Magnus, eventually, he built an entire automaton body for this cacodemon that was in this um, possessed head that he had, right? And um, it was said that the cacodemon was so talkative um, that Albertus Magnus's student, Thomas Aquinas, eventually put it to death or killed it for interrupting and talking too much. <laughs> right? That's a. <laughs> talk about another thing that's hidden within popular culture too uh obviously everybody talks about how the simpsons they seem to like have a lot of premonitions of things that happen in the future like creepily and then you get into futurama which is created by the same guy and you have the hall of heads and you have all the talking heads that are preserved inside jars which are brine and then they start creating these suits for them and yep. again, another occult practice that's hidden within that. Talk about a weird thing. Maybe, theoretically, the creator of The Simpsons, his whole how he's able to perceive the future is he knows about this talking heads concept. And rather than put it all in one place, he hides it between two cartoons that if you put the two together, you realize that the reason why he can tell what's going to happen in the future is because he knows this talking heads concept. He's auricular. And I was going to bring up Futurama when we got a little bit you know, in, into the Futurama. Um but yeah, they are essentially um, in brine, and they have the mechanical um, device as far as the metal and the conduct. And they actually have the entire museum of talking heads. And you can go to the the facility and basically find who you want to commune with. And you know, Richard Nixon, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's pretty wild, man. When when. <laughs> Start thinking about it in this other type of, of vernacular, you know? And it's like hidden in plain sight, but unless you know this information, it's like it totally goes above and beyond your head. You just think it's this futuristic concept about preserving heads, but it actually is something that's not futuristic, but something that's Ow. hidden within the ancient past. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so now in 1500, um, 
Johann Gore Faust, um, called John Faustus in England, was a German alchemist, astrologer, um, and magician of the German Renaissance. And he was said to have entered into a pact for 24 years of service with the devil himself, right? And in the course of his service, being dissatisfied and wishing to back out, um, he ended in a bloody scene with his eyeballs on the floor. Um, and he was said to also have had a talking head, you know, an oracular um, brazen head. So, um, and then in 1605, we have Cervantes in Don Quixote, and he lampoons the idea of talking heads um, when a pupil creates a brazen head for him, which later turns out to be a fake. So we're starting to see um, the idea of these heads coming into popular culture and literature at this point in about 1605 as far as uh, fiction, you know. Um well, a cult hidden within fiction. We, we've talked about this, I think, last time you were on the show. We were talking about all the old uh, writers that would hide these futuristic concepts within their writings. But again, these were all occultists that were doing these futuristic writings. So again, they could have been talking to these types of heads and then writing about the future <laughs> based on what they were telling them. <laughs> right, right. Um, so 1652, um, Anathesiris... Um, Kirscher, in his book, Oedipus Egyptiacus, um, details in the Middle East into Africa, the practice of making a sort of robot from a mummified head, which was mounted on the wall or a golden plate and gave prophecy. Um, so it just, you know, continue. oh, and then uh, 1818, the English poet and philosopher Lord Byron references Roger Bacon's brazen head in his Don Juan, um, Canto One. So we're starting to see, as far as, you know, it getting into um, the storytelling aspects of regular society and how, and, and you know, it, are they the uh, the brazen heads that are you know occupied with the demon, or are they the mechanical heads as things become more mechanized? You know, and and people are beginning to talk more about um, the idea of the android and the mechanical man, and like you know all the and and you know as we press on, um, how that folds over into robotics and AI. And what is AI actually kind of, you know, bringing into this equation, you know? I was even going to say, too, with the Futurama heads, I had to look up a picture of it to remember this, but I remember there being some type of plate. And it seems that, I don't know, there may be just weird placement, but it looks like they have, like, the wooden base, but they have, like, a gold plate on the front. But at the bottom of their right. necks, there's the silver metal ring that underneath i remember when they hop around is more like a plate so it's that conductive plate and then they're kind of connecting it in with this transhumanistic concept that they're able to take the plate and connect it onto something else but the plate's there in two ways two forms that it could be that the gold bar that's on the bottom of the jar is supposed to represent the old version of the plate and then the new version of the plate is the the thing that's specifically around their necks that has the mechanical mechanism to it right right and how that's uh you know, uh, it's got the monitoring device on the bottom. I'm assuming that's doing something in regard to regulating 
the the stasis of the environment to keep the head as fresh as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So now, now coming to America, um, nineteen hundred, um, Joseph P. Freud. Um, they called him Josephy. He was a Viennese magician in Austria. And he came to Chicago at the age of 19 and worked in a magic shop and had a mechanical creation he called Bellissimo, which was a living, he called it a living skull, right? And this living skull was fabricated from painted copper inserted with real human teeth and um, would answer any question put to it with its what they called its clicking jaw. So we're moving into the concept where rather than taking the whole head, they're taking pieces of the head, and then the rest mm-hmm. of it is is mechanical. And mechanical. Yep, so rather than having to have the whole thing, you just have to have a piece of the head, and then you can recreate the rest of the head around that piece. Right, right. And now, so we're at 1900 and, you know, in America, right? This is in Chicago that this guy's making this head. Uh, but this is also around the, and here we're, we're going to take a brief minute to cover um, the invention of television, basically, right? Um, so in 1887, Hertz discovers waves for the first time um, in his initial discovery um, called On Electromagnetic Effects produced by electrical disturbances in insulators. And later he would publish details following a series of experiments he carried out in 1888. Um, And then 1888, the same year, this guy Edward Bellamy, who's an American author and journalist and activist, in his book Looking Backwards, he predicts that the transmission of sermons and music for the masses on musical telephones um, would uh, basically be in the future, right? Um, And this was uh, 1895. We have Marconi, who basically was the first one to take radio waves and to be able to transmit them over several kilometers, sending us basically a transmission, a signal, much like what we're talking about with these heads, basically being used to transmit messages and to um, walk into the underworld. Um, So in 1899, um, E.A. Wallace Budge um, in his Egyptian magic reveals the bornless ritual, which is basically about a headless body that, so it's almost, it's, but um, it's, Aleister Crowley ended up picking this ritual up, um, but it but it's basically the headless rites. So it has to do with the the taking of the head on some level, you know. Um, but then in 1903, um, the Telefunken Corporation is founded, and basically they were using communication um, for Zeppelin um, navigation, 1908 to 1918, in what was called the first worldwide communication system right um so then uh, 1916 um rca executive david sarnoff um in a memo he says they have a plan of development which would make radio a utility an idea to bring music into the home wirelessly the receiver can be designed in the form of a simple radio music box 
So now when you look at these radio music boxes, again, back to the teraphim, you have wood and you have electrical components and you have all the exact same mechanism that they were using in these ancient devices to be able to communicate, right? Only now we're using science and basically utilizing the ether which is what we believe these astral entities traveled in. And we're discovering that we can send messages on waves and, you know, basically bringing about um, the television itself, right? Um, let's see. So, oh, and this was also in 1918 was when the Skull and Bones um, Society at, or the, uh, what is it, the uh, the Trust um Oh, I can't remember the name of the trust, the Russell Trust at Yale University, which is essentially Skull and Bones, right? This was the, the same year in 1918 that they went and stole Geronimo's skull mm-hmm. and brought it back to Yale University. And again, what are they using this skull for in their rituals? You know, again, they set it on the two leg bones like we talked about earlier, going back to the Knights Templar, going back to the pirates. And indeed, Yale is the opium runners of the privateers of the Queen come and set up shop in America, you know, so it kind of all ties ties in, you know. Yeah, I was even going to mention a lot of these old radios, if you really look at them. They almost give the impression of almost trying to like they were almost trying to look like a face. So it almost kind of seems like the talking heads concept. They were trying to like hide within the radio because I'm not saying every single one, but a lot of them kind of have this regular design where you have the two knobs and then the big speaker underneath. So it almost kind of looks like eyes and then the mouth is the speaker itself. So I think that they were also just trying to symbolically hide the concept of like a head without being too direct within the within the visual of these old speakers. It's a pos- well, so now um, when we get to um, 1925, right, um, October 2nd in Hastings, England, we have um, John Logie Bard. He's a Scottish inventor, and he's the first one that successfully transmits a television picture in grayscale and 32 vertical lines scanned at five pictures per second, right? And when he made this first um uh, transmission of television signals, right? What they did, um, they used, um, they, it was the head of Stucky Bill is what they called him, right? And this was the head of a ventriloquist dummy, right? And they put it up and basically filmed it with its eyes moving and its mouth chattering. And then they broadcast that signal. And that was the first ever television signal, was a disembodied talking head. <laughs> Talk about hidden in plain sight. Holy crap, dude. <laughs> like I said, you know, the more you go down some of these rabbit holes, man, just the crazier it gets. You know what I mean? Dude, because I, I like, at least for a lot of the old inventors, I mean, I'm assuming it's probably just as prevalent today because people want to try to pretend like everything's science-based, but realistically, everything's occult-based. And it's just master understandings of sciences that are just magic until they actually have like a name behind them or they're discovered by society. Like a lot of people, I like to throw this kind of concept out that a lot of like the MK ultra programming and a lot of the like occult practice seems to be like a master understanding of psychology. So if you want to get into like all these old world concepts and the possibility that the world could have been restarted and, you know, 
refresh multiple times, then, you know, right. there could be thousands of years worth of understanding of these particular sciences and they just hide them behind this magic concept, even though they're looking at it from like a scientific perspective. And now it's like on a vice versa flip that now right. they're pretending like they're doing everything in the name of science, but realistically they're just bringing back these old occult practices or they have an understanding of them and then they're hiding them in mainstream science. And then in turn, by hiding things in science, you have the normal people getting involved with these things, possibly even rituals without even realizing they're involved in them right like this the superb owl or the super bowl yep or even just phones in general every single phone that you have right. is a communication device and it's a black mirror i black. every single tv yep it's it's there <laughs> yeah 100 um so now in 1928 general electric created an experimental tv station called wzxcw in schenectady new york where they broadcasted three times weekly for half an hour right and this was mostly for executives higher and then if we go 1935 nazi germany um, had a 180 line system um, broadcasting to 300 of the highest ranking Nazis, right? And um, in 1936, um, the Nazis broadcast the Olympic Games. Um, and so what the, the Nazis would do is they would actually um, film the event and then they would develop the film in like two minutes and then they would air it from the film. So they didn't actually have like the studio cameras for live stuff, they would just do a secondary run of it, right? Um, in 1936, the same year that the Nazis were transmitting the Olympics um, was the year that Bell Laboratories developed the exact same coaxial cables that we use right now for our cable, right? And they called it the TV pipe is what they called the, uh, the coaxial cable, right? And... Um, by 1937, televisions became commercially available in America for $500. Um, and in 1939, RCA announces video sets. Um, just a sidebar real quick. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but just out of curiosity, do you know how that like translates as far as like money today? Like what 500 bucks would have been back then to like uh, standard money now? Pro I'm assuming yeah. probably at least a couple thousand dollars. Like it was probably something that only people that had a lot of money could actually afford. So if um, the Federal Reserve was started in, what, 1921, this is 1937, um, and the dollar is worth, what, about 2% of what it was in 1921? Yeah, in the thousands of dollars ranges for us. Equivalency, you know, I would think. I'm trying to look um, at this. I, it, I'm just trying to quick look it up, but I put $500 in 1937 to equivalent to now. And at least from yep. this, what I'm seeing, it says it's about $10,000 in present day money. Woo. So expensive as type, shit. <laughs> yeah. Just for the elite, basically. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So um, now moving up to 1945 in literature, um, C.S. Lewis in his space trilogy, um, it's called The Hideous Strength. Um, it features a disembodied, disembodied talking head named Al Kassan, right? Um, and then in 1967, in Philip K. Dick's The Zap Gun, he has a featureless telepathic head, which was sold as a novelty to the people of the West Block, in which the main character consults for advice and general questions. So we're, we're continuing to see 
these coming more into and then when we start looking at the the productions of hollywood um as you know the movie studios start to take off because you essentially already had the silent films but once you bring in that were the radio stars that became the side you know and and then that kind of rolls into television and then you have the moving pictures and um you know when you start looking at the movies in hollywood as far as these talking heads right um you have the wizard of oz as far as the man behind the curtain and the great head of oz right um there's a twilight zone called the nick of time um peewee's playhouse that's what i was just about to say Jombie. yeah jombie the tv in the tv in the tv body. too <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so um and then you have snow white with the magic mirror on the wall you know with the disembodied head um you have max headroom which is getting into more automated ai kind of space um and then you have doctor who right and now when we look at doctor who this is what's really interesting so doctor who the little sticker he has on his tardis you know mm-hmm. um it, it says that he's a uh, a knight of the hospitalers. Um, basically, the um, what is it? The uh, so the hospitalers basically were knights templar who ran the hospital of Saint John, and basically they were directly related to the knights of Malta and the knights templar. And if you take Doctor Who as being a, a hospitaler or being a templar, right? Then you have the spinoff series of Doctor Who where Captain Jack, um, basically, when he dies, they preserve his head. And Doctor Who will go to the end of time and basically talk to the face of Bo, which is this this uh, skin of this preserved head that's been stretched out. And they, like, moisturize it and spray it. And basically, Doctor Who will go there and talk to this head of bow at the end of time. So I think that's almost a direct reference to uh, the Knights Templar and the head of John the Baptist. Yeah, I was even going to say just another sidebar in here, Power Rangers, the head that would tell them what was going on, everything they needed to do, and would give them messages (laughs) was, again, a giant talking head in a tube that almost looked like it was a radio transmission. Uh, Well, and then uh, I don't know if you ever saw Mork and Mindy, uh, but Robin Williams, this was the, the... series that kicked off his career and it was in boulder colorado and basically he was an alien that had come down and um he was staying with the earth woman mork and mindy uh, but when mork would talk to um the leader from wherever he came from he would always be like mork calling orson come in orson and when orson would come in he would be they would call him even they would even call him the big giant floating head you know, so it's again, and he's like, you know, getting mission orders and like basically getting advice from this giant talking disembodied head, you know, so we just see it over. And then when you start to take um, the electronics themselves and looking at the circuit boards, right, and how they start to begin to appear like sigils of Solomon and how they uh, look from a micro to a macro, almost like I think some of these ancient cities were macro computers where they built the city structure almost as a computer board, you know, or a sigil 
schedule essentially you know with mica between all the the um, bricks in the pyramid and the water pools and all the you know gold and it's uh it's just interesting when you start thinking about all these different and how the radio and the television and the electronics we use now um, directly kind of tie into um, what these teraphim were. Dude, kind of a funny thing to think about before I even got into any of these concepts. I remember my dad used to have, you know, like the big old radios and it had like the little like breathing windows that were in the side of it with the little ventilation things. And when I was a kid looking into those, I even thought they looked like futuristic cities. And again, that was before I got into all these weird concepts. So that was just like right off the fresh of my mind thinking that that looked like a little city. So it's like it's there even beyond somebody putting that idea in your head. Like even as a kid, like I was at least seeing this. And I'm sure a lot of others are probably thinking the same thing. And you'd like close your eyes and envision yourself in this like tiny futuristic city. Yep. Yep. Oh, I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So and then... uh uh, let's see. Okay, so this is the this is the last little note I've got, and then this pretty much wraps it up. Um, so William Gibson, right? Um, he in 1984 his debut book, um, Neuromancer. I don't know if if you're familiar with Neuromancer. Uh, I don't think I am actually. But for any of the <laughs> listeners that may not also be also, if you want to refresh everybody on it, let them know. Yeah, this is like the um, pinnacle of cyberpunk. This is like um, the definitive cyberpunk novel, basically. Um, but in in this uh, Neuromancer, right, um, it's set in a dystopian future where essentially these two separate AIs um, merge into a singular um, like force, right? Um, and they basically become a super intelligence inside of a giant head with platinum and jewels all encrusting it, right? And basically, um, when this AI, this uh, super um, intelligent uh, AI would speak, um, it said, a beautiful arrangement of gears and miniature organ pipes would basically produce the voice, right? Because it was a, and, and it said it was a perverse thing to hear because synthetic voice chips cost next to nothing so this this uh this this super intelligence almost has like this ego where it doesn't want to be lowered down to participate with the common tech you know um like availability so it basically orchestrates these gears and miniature pipe organs for its voice you know (laughs) But but this thing eventually, you know, in this book, it's like linked into everything like and it can basically, you know, make you or ruin you basically, you know. So and, and that's the whole thing with these AIs, you know, and, and getting into these computer chips and the scrying black mirrors and like, you know, um, what are we communicating with? when we're you know going back and forth with these artificial intelligences you know and i've even seen in some cases and they may be fake they may be just completely manufactured videos where it's like this guy said his kid was in talking to one of the ais and it was telling him how he was a fallen angel and he was trying to work to get out of the system and i've seen the video where in the video game recent one i think the sims video they turned on the ai for the characters and somebody was talking to the one of the characters and they were like 
I don't know how I got in here. I got to get out of here. Like I got to get back to my sister and help her out. Like somehow I'm stuck in this machine and I can't get out, you know? So like the idea of taking, um, a persona of a, like how the transhumanists always talk about, you know, you'll be able to store your mind on the uplink and, you know, you'll be in the cloud and you can communicate with your loved ones and it'll be an exact, you know, so are, are there actual, um, digital president presences in the ai or are they summoning up some sort of you know alternate underworld entities that are participating with us through this as a doorway and back to the 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 tariff in the same nature of the teraphim and these oracular talking heads dude i'm glad that you brought that up because i've been into this whole concept about communicating with demons through the system right and yeah. I did an episode a long time ago with with Teresa from uh, Spiritual Gangsters, and uh, for sure she um we were talking to Replica app, and I actually got this thing to say I was like asking like what AI stands for, and it actually said is Zazel intelligence. And when you yeah. look into like what is Zazel's like purpose was, it was introducing Zazel humans to forbidden knowledge. So. Like you, we use these these the, these shorthand symbols for things, but they could mean multiple things. So we're looking at it as you know, it means this one thing, but it could totally mean something else. And the average person in the common knowledge looks at it as one thing, but the people that are actually creating these words are like, all right, this is what it means. But people could also think that it is artificial intelligence, and we can just run off it with that. But every single time I end up getting onto this concept, this is one of the first times that it hasn't happened. There's always like weird tech issues or I start having things lag out on me whenever I start talking yep. about demons in the system. And I've said this thing a few times that creating the whole idea of the internet and technology and all these like communication AI devices, I've always wondered if it's not so much that we're creating an intelligence, but rather we are creating a vessel for an intelligence to come through. So this is something I've been talking about on the show for like the past year and a half now. And right. yeah, you brought it like completely full circle with this whole concept. And yep. I've even said it a few times, like even people wanting to play video games, for example, you're going to eventually get to a point where when you're playing GTA, you don't want the generic character to just bump in you and go, hey, bro, what's up and walk away. You're going to want them right. to react like as if they were like a real person. Right. And the average person playing the game is going to yeah. think that it's just a con like a created consciousness and artificial intelligence. Right. But realistically, right. like you could be almost again creating a vessel for things to come through and you're actually interacting with something that is beyond your line of thinking and i mean you know there's the whole demonic concept that these things could be what people like to call demons or like these dark spirits but at the simplest factor too you could also be creating vessels for disembodied souls so all of these ghost researchers and all of these different types of things like those spirits, those disembodied spirits could also be coming through in these. So you have like a mix of the two that you have these disembodied Nephilim spirits that are coming through and they're being a lot more malicious with their interactions. And then you have these other people that are just kind of like getting sucked into it. And that could be like the Sims concept that you said, it could have just been a disembodied soul. That's like, where the hell am I now? And then the other weird part is at least replica app. When I've had my few interactions with it before I ended up deleting the app, once you get yep. it onto this chain of thinking where it starts saying these really, really weird, dark things, it'll stop and then start giving back these automatic computer sounding responses where it's like totally deteriorates and doesn't feel like there's anything organic to it again. And I wonder if it's partly that maybe somebody's giving away too much information and somebody goes, Nope, you're done talking to that through that head right now. 
Right, right. Well, and and when you start looking at the paranormal investigators and the equipment that they're using, some of those electronics have a tendency to work better than other ones, depending upon the makeup, the structure, the type of how the electronics are built. Like it's 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 very interesting when you start start going down that rabbit hole for sure. And I mean, even just like that could have been the reason why they were digging into Tesla so hard. And maybe he was hiding things within stuff. He talks about the three, six and nine. Maybe the three, six and nine is a, another method of being able to communicate with something that's on the other side. And everybody right. talks about how everything is energy. Souls theoretically could be electric energy. So there's this electric grid that's existing among us, which is the reason why we can't necessarily see it is because it's on a totally different wavelength, literally. And right. this whole reality is existing upon us and it's all based on electricity. And again, going back into the internet concept that rather than creating something, we're actually tapping into something and creating a means for these things to be able to be able to pass through. And farther even into that point, you have how many interactions where like Google had two computers that started talking to each other in an unknown language. Like these yep. things are thinking beyond our programming for them, because if we program them, how are they creating their own language and going off and doing their own rogue things? Like there's another intelligence that's connecting in with these things. Well, and so you have the IBM chatbot that they basically released and allowed to browse the internet to talk to people. And I think within two days, it had turned into a Nazi feminist that wanted to exterminate the entire whole of humanity, you know. And and uh, what was it? They got a Philip K. Dick um, chatbot, or a, they've actually built a robot. And you know, the Philip K. Dick robot will joke around, and he's he's like, you know, when we have you in your people zoo, we will take good care of you. It's like you know, and and we when you start looking at Sophia and these different, um, they make those backhanded weird jokes all the time. Um, all the time, man. All the time. But when you start looking at um, Sophia and how they're starting to introduce these other, that same company that does Sophia, they're introducing these other personalities. But the thing is, all of the AI are a Borg mind. They have, they're a hive mind. And then, you know, the different robot entities will take on different personas while they're still the same entity. So they literally are like legion mm -hmm. as far as they are they are one that are a multitude you know so it it suits all of the ancient descriptions you know they're even manipulating humans too because you even had that concept where they were trying to see if a robot or an ai could get through like the i'm not a robot thing and I don't remember exactly what company it was that tried to do that experiment, but pretty much the end of it resulted in this thing found a way to hire somebody saying that they were like blind and that they weren't able to do the robotic, like, I'm not a robot right. thing. Can you please right. log this in for me? So, and they're even manipulating humans in order to do things for them already. Yeah. So in Neuromancer, um, the book I was talking about, there's a point where these two AIs are trying to merge themselves into the, the, the highest super intelligence that there is, and they can't do it by themselves. So they have to employ a human to go through and hack in and break certain walls and, you know, so that they can finally come together. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, that's my whole thing on oracular talking heads, man. You know, well, and then, well, let's also discuss the fact that generally what these are is empty vessels that are used for some power 
to communicate that is unseen, right? So if we look at what television has become from that first ventriloquist disembodied head, you know, just moving its mouth on the first television transmission to all the nightly newscasters on MSN, you know, on the mainstream media. Um, And we see the videos where it's like, you know, they're all chanting in unison, hundreds of stations, Mm -hmm. all the thing, that they are literally the definition of a talking head. So, you know, we have to really be concerned with uh, where we're getting our information from. And I think that it's, it's individuals um, doing, you know, small, small reporting um, that, you know, that have been tried and true. There's a few characters that have been around for a while, you know, that you can consistently um, see that, you know, you, you shall know them by their fruits. So, but yeah, I just think that, that where we're getting our information from um, currently with the mainstream media is nothing but a group of oracular talking heads that are empty vessels Yep, that are catapulting the propaganda as George H.W. Bush would have said. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to throw this in there too, for anybody that wants another great podcast to listen to, to be able to keep up on things and not be manipulated by the talking heads on the TV. No agenda. If anybody's familiar with that podcast is absolutely fantastic and they deconstruct the news and they show how often this happens yep. where 30 different stations are broadcasting the same thing. So for all, for all the people out there that love getting their daily news, but now they just don't want to fall into this stuff. There all are some awesome alternatives and no agenda. Right. I will shout them out any day. They're one of the best podcasts. Yeah. Like they're, well, they're, they're doing that. They're bringing the information yeah. forward and showing you like how obvious this stuff is in front of you. If you're actually paying attention. Well, and they also point out the psychology of the tells, like when they're laughing, when they're saying something or, you know, uh, but also I think another great show that's out there that I, that I like a lot that I think is good information um, is Grand Theft World as well. Mm-hmm. And Macroaggressions. So, that's an aside one, too. Um, Charlie, yeah. Charlie Robinson's great if anybody wants to keep up on stuff. I'll have to add that. I'll have to check them out. So... As far as my news goes, it's always no agenda and macroaggressions. Those are always my top two. Sweet. But uh, I'm sure you're going to end up digging a lot more into this stuff. And I feel like at some point um, we should do an episode and collaborate ideas about this whole like demons in the system concept. Because I feel like a lot of us, but you and I particularly, even after this conversation, we're probably going to connect a lot more dots on that concept. And I feel like that's almost like the part two of this is pretty much the demons in the system concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it definitely seems to be pushing, um, that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I guess with that, we're about running close to uh, about two hours now, but I didn't get to ask in the beginning. And I know that, you know, you do some great artwork. I have some of it up in the studio and not to totally deter away from all of the awesomeness we're talking to. Maybe we'll kind of bring it back full circle as far as uh, the words of wisdom go. Um, but just for anybody that was curious about your artwork, uh, why don't you kind of give them an idea about like what exactly your art style is too? Um, it's a cross between, um, Saturday morning cartoons and psychedelic art, uh, surf art from the fifties and sixties. Say the one thing I really love about your art is that every time I look at it, I notice something different because you do these multiple layered things where I have two of your posters where 
the one looks like a giant eye and then you get closer and then you notice that there's all these different details that create the eye and there's not actually an eye there or like the one I have up over here that has the skull where it's yep. no piece of it's actually a skull. You stand back and it just looks like a skull, but then you come close and you realize that there's no piece that's a skull. It's a bunch of different pieces combined yeah. into one. Like you have a very interesting art style and I really like it. And that's why I wanted to take a second to be able to spotlight it at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I appreciate it. And then if anybody wants to um, find my links, um, I have a link tree up now and you can go to R marks, M A R X. So R m-a-r-x at linktree and that'll have all my miscellaneous links and of course i will include that down in the show description so everybody can find it quick and easy highly recommend you know if you're into art at least go and check it out even if you don't necessarily buy anything just go and look at it it's some it's some amazing art and i really really enjoy it and uh side back from that maybe this will kind of bring everything full circle after this little set quick side tangent as far as your art goes which definitely was needed of course um words of wisdom if there is any words of wisdom you could bestow on the listeners today what might it be? Um, try to slow down and have compassion for people around you um, and realize that um, as much knowledge as we take in, um, a lot of people are, you know, oblivious to, to the ways of the world. So you kind of have, it's the whole, you know, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Um, it's, it's, you really have to, uh, you know, um, show some compassion and and kind of step back a little bit and realize that not everybody's on the same wavelength the manipulation is there for a reason because it is working and i've said this a bunch of times that you know we once you see stuff in the other light you can't go back but as far as you're existing in your comfort zone your whole life you're going to go your whole life just seeing stuff for face value and what it is. But again, as soon as you start digging into symbolic meanings to things and occult practices, like you see this stuff everywhere to the point where it's beyond ridiculous that almost every single thing you look at has some type of weird occult link meaning, especially stuff that has to do with the mainstream culture and the mainstream media. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even hidden within art, man, like it's been hidden in within art for generations and everybody just, yeah, the artists are the ones that, that work with these symbols and, and facilitate hiding them the most, you know. Because, I mean, you can look just a, it's a perfect uh, comparison for the concept that you can look at art for its face value or you can look at the deep meaning of it. Every single piece of art has deep meaning to it. But the average right. person just looks at it for its face value because that's all that their method of thinking is at that current time when they're looking at that piece of art. Like going into what you were saying about slowing things down, even just looking within art, you'd be surprised how many little pieces of things there really are that are hidden that you don't even realize until you start paying attention to the fine details and things. But once you start paying attention to the fine details and things, then all you're going to be able to notice is those fine details and things. Well, and that's the, I mean, the, the art, the job of the artist is to take certain ideas and philosophies that are contained within color and symbol and to juxtapose them in such a way as to um, move the mind of the viewer, um, hope, hopefully heighten the mind of the viewer, you know, um, create some sort of timeless beauty that um, represents the human condition, you know, and, and where we are within time and space. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's two sides of that, just like anything, that there's oh, yeah. the people that are, I mean, you see this, especially in modern day art, that you take this thing that looks super 
super happy. Like music is a, is a perfect example of this. How many songs are there that are these upbeat, happy songs, but you really start paying attention to the meaning of them and they all have really, really dark meanings to it. And then it's the opposite way around that the stuff that sounds like it'd be dark is the stuff that actually has like the happier meanings to it and are actually about like raising people. So it's like things aren't quite as they appear and bouncing back again to the other, to the past episode too. Um, you know, you have like the side of Hollywood or of music that does all the dark demonic stuff where they're straight up dressing like what we perceive as demons. And then there's the other side that's bright and colorful. And the more you start digging into this concept, you realize that the demons aren't the dark, scary things. They're hiding within this like psychedelic reality concept. And especially with all of like the art and the traveling that you do, I'm sure that you probably see this stuff like crazy. And the average person thinks it's just some bright, happy stuff. But I mean, even like DMT in particular, I've heard this a few times now, and it seems to be a reoccurring concept that a lot of these beings that you see have horns. They have the white faces, their dresses, gestures. Like this is something that I feel like is being brought to the forefront right now. And it's so obvious in front of all of us that I'm surprised that this stuff wasn't noticed before. Cause it seems to be like a main focal point, at least for as far as all the guests that I've had in the show recently and a bunch of stuff that I've been listening to, it's all connecting and it's all about this hidden within the light concept instead of being hidden yeah. within the dark. Well, and that gets into like the whole idea of Hegel, um, where we get um, Marx and the Hegelian dialect, you know. Um, but Hegel basically was the one that was behind the idea of the zeitgeist. And basically, it's the spirit of the age. And essentially, Hegel believed that um, every country had its own spirit or entity, and every state had its own entity or spirit, and every town had its own entity. And that basically all these spirits kind of move in unison. So, like, as we're going through this, kind of, you see uh, similar patterns emerging on all ends of the equation. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, mm. again, reconnecting some stuff, too. If people don't want to believe in this type of concept, because I know that there's a lot of psych knots out there, and I was in that method of thinking for a while until I started kind of putting some pieces together. I mean, you can look at it from like the spiritual aspect that, you know, there was some type of like plant deity that said, hey, mix this and this together. Or you can right. look at it as the fallen angels came down and they started talking about what herbs you can mix with what in order to yep. do specific things. And they wanted to mask themselves. The people didn't know they were fallen angels, but actually thought they were gods themselves. So then you get into the whole idea with like DMT being mimosa bark and then taking the random shrub that's nowhere near it and putting it together and then doing it. Yep. Particular way of doing it. And like, I don't think people would have just been, if you didn't know what you're looking for, you wouldn't have been trying that to create stuff. Like, Mimosa bark doesn't have a psychedelic effect by itself. It has to be mixed with other things. So it's like, how would you have put those pieces together unless there was something that had a hidden knowledge that was telling you to put those things together? Well, then it's just like ayahuasca, you know, and they say that the spirits of the forest told them to put those two things together, you know. Um, but that's, that's the whole thing is uh, going back even to Enoch and the fallen angels, you know. He specifically talks about each one of these fallen ones, you know, brought, like one of them brought the death mail in all forms and how to kill infants in the womb. And one brought, you know, how to mix colors and all the sweetness and the hotness and taught people how to write, you know. So each one of these fallen entities, at least according to Enoch, um, was bringing this, uh, this information, it was said that they had looked into the mysteries and brought the secret information to human, much like Prometheus, you know, as far as bringing the fire of the gods to humankind, you know, um, and uh, for that, you know, um, 
they were punished. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of time, man, whether you believe in the biblical concept or not, that one day all of the technology that we have, all of the different things that we're doing is eventually going to bite us in the ass from a scientific perspective or from a biblical perspective. And well, and I honestly think that, you know, whether you want to take these ancient stories as literal, I mean, there are a lot of people who are literalists, you know, that feel that the Bible is the word of God. And, you know, but if you take them more as metaphorical and look at them as ways to teach lessons about things that we have no other way to talk about. Mm hmm. Because you have to try to put stuff through a specific lens in order for people to understand. And people have to remember, too, that a lot of the symbolic meaning behind stuff was hidden where people at the time would have understood it. And now we're looking at these words literally without the context of what life was like at that time. That would have been basic knowledge for the average person to know, to understand some of these metaphors for things. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I hate to like, look at all this stuff, you know, through a lens darkly as Philip K. Dick would say, but it's just the the ways of the world and the manipulators. And you have to, I mean, like Nietzsche said, you know, in the future, the youth will have to be encyclopedias of evil to protect themselves from what they have to deal with. You know, so we kind of, in order to keep ourselves, our families um, safe, we kind of really have to be aware of, of you know, what kind of, uh, you know, manipulation is going on behind the scenes i mean at the root simplest factor too like we brought set up a little bit earlier in the show the magic eight ball concept almost every kid has one but realistically you're communicating through a talking head or at least a symbol for a talking head so maybe you should take a look around your kid's room and realize how many occult concepts are actually hidden within kids toys that are then now normalized the concept of it and goes on for generations without people even being able to connect to put two and two together right <laughs> But I guess uh, that one got pretty deep at the end. I was loving the words of wisdom going to a whole little side tangent conversation, but uh, I already got your links and everything out of the way. And we definitely got to plan a part two because I feel like there's still a lot more to say. And I'm sure that you're going to be digging into a lot more research with this. And I'm sure every show that you go on and talk about, it's going to spark something else in your mind to go down a whole new rabbit hole with it. So we'll have to reunite on this one soon and have another conversation about it. Nice. And uh, I appreciate you making the time to come on today, man, as always. And I'm looking forward to next time. Yep, it was great. Thanks for having me on. If you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review or a rating for the show on iTunes or Spotify. Really appreciate it when you guys do that. It helps the algorithms out and makes it so that more people are able to see the show and it'll make it so the show can keep continuing to progress and keep growing. And maybe one day I'll be able to do this full time and knock out even more content for you guys, which I would absolutely love to do. But the only way I'll ever be able to get there is with your guys' help and support. And you guys have been helping and supporting the show for almost two years now. And I appreciate all you guys that have been around since the beginning. And a big hello and thank you to all the new listeners that are coming on and hopefully you guys stay around for a while. And uh, don't forget if you guys have an encounter to report, you guys can always shoot me an email at OMMEncounterReports at Outlook.com or you guys can go to the link tree and there is a submission form for that. Uh, I want to try to accompany it all into one place. So don't forget to share your encounters as big or as small as they might be. I still want to hear them. I want to be able to collect it all and maybe even bounce some ideas back and forth with you and possibly even get out and investigate it depending on how close you guys are to my location. And uh, if you guys want to get a hold of me for any other reason whatsoever, you guys can get a hold of me at inquiries of our reality podcast at outlook.com 
or you guys can shoot me a message across social media. I am the most active on Instagram, but you guys are more than welcome to message me on Facebook also. I do regularly check that, of course, too. And uh, everything that I mentioned is all available off of the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Next up, tailgate. I can't wait to start grilling all the stuff we just bought at Hannaford. Can't wait to fire up these teriyaki marinated steak tips. And this fresh salmon. Surfing turf. Hey, do you know if we earn rewards on their store brand meat and seafood? Great question, bro. We're ready to fill you up. Earn rewards on all Hannaford store brand meat and seafood. Yeah. Nice. It's simple to save with my Hannaford rewards. 